This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hi, this is Gene Gilliland, Conservation Director for BASS, Bass Angler Sportsman Society, and you're listening to Impact Outdoors Podcast. One of the components of my job now as Bass Conservation Director is to oversee our tournament operations fish care processes and make sure that our tournament staff, whether it's at an elite event or a high school event or anything in between, uh, that we follow our protocols to try to maximize the, the release of fish after our tournaments. And, I, and I'll say, I, I, I think we're, Bass is pretty proud of the, the fact that if you look at all of our tournaments, all of those different levels, Going back for 10, 15 years or more, our release rates average over 90%. And I think that's a testimony to not just how good bass does in terms of the weigh-in process, but how the anglers have done, have learned and are doing a better and better job of taking care of the fish in the boats, in the live boats. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Impact Outdoors Podcast this week and this week we're joined with Mr. Gene Gilliland, who is the National Conservation Director for BASS, and uh, really had a great conversation with Gene, talking about all the, the great things he's done over his career with uh, 30 plus years with the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation, um, kind of leading the charge there on all the fisheries work that they were doing across the state during that time, and and uh, somebody that I really looked up to growing up in Oklahoma, um, wanted to work for ODWC, you know, when I was growing up, um, not really know where I was going to end up in my career. So it was really great to catch up with Gene and talk about fishing and just all the great things that BASS is doing and what they're doing with their conservation program, um, with their chapters all across the country, and uh, just really leading the charge and um, the survival and enhancement of the ways to properly handle these fish at these tournaments and stuff all across the United States. So let's get right to it with Gene Gilliland. Well, man, it's a it's a real pleasure and honor to have um, my friend Mr. Gene Gilland on the show this week, and um, 
Gene, I'll have to say, I, you know, growing up in Oklahoma, um, knowing I was going to go into fishery somehow, um, you were one of the guys that I always wanted to work for, funny enough, and uh, and here you are on the podcast with me today. So I want to welcome you to the show, Gene. How are you doing, sir? Well, I'm, I'm good. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for coming on. And, um, you know, um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about just, you know, you, you're... Um, been involved with fishing your whole life i assume um where did that start for you as a kid i mean where did that passion for fishing and all that start out for you growing up my my family was really not outdoorsy um but when my father retired from the military and we moved back to north texas i had an uncle who was a very avid angler and and i was probably I don't know, 10, 11, 12 years old, somewhere in there. And and he took me fishing to start with. And uh, I got to row the boat with oars. That that was my job. And, uh, you know, he, he outfitted me with a, a Zebco 33 and a Johnson silver minnow spoon and a uh, Uncle Josh pork frog because I could fling that thing off into the trees and not get hung up uh, and still catch fish every now and then. And, and that just kind of lit the fire. And, uh, you know, I, I started fishing uh, very regularly. I, I eventually joined Bass Club, I guess, when I was in junior high, actually, uh, there in Gainesville, Texas. And I, I just kind of grew from there. And when I got into high school and I got into biology classes, that's where I sort of made that connection with the science side of it. Mm-hmm. And and that's what, uh, you know, I was already an avid angler. And now, now I became really interested in the biology aspects of, of fish and fishing and, and essentially pursued a career because of that. Yeah. Where'd you go to school at? I, I got my uh, bachelor's degree at Texas A&M. Mm-hmm. Had a great set of professors down there. A lot of them are or what I'd call Hall of Fame fisheries professors uh, that, that just happened to all be there at the same time when I was a student there. So I got a, what, I, what I felt was a really good uh, groundwork uh, in my bachelor's degree. Hmm. And then I went to Oklahoma State University for my master's degree and worked on a project for the Oklahoma Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit. And, and that project I was studying uh, the food habits of largemouth bass and striped bass hybrids that had recently been stocked into a lake in Oklahoma and a lot of research going on at that time to determine whether, you know, this was going to be a, a good thing or a bad thing in terms of impacting native bass populations when you stock these striped bass hybrids. Mm-hmm. And as part of that connection, that project was actually funded by the Oklahoma Department of Wildlife Conservation. So I got to know a lot of the people uh, with the state agency through my graduate program. And when I graduated, just coincidentally, there was an opening as a biologist at the Oklahoma Fishery Research Lab in Norman. And I was I was hired as a, a research biologist and I stayed in that position for. Twenty. Seven years. Yeah. Uh, and, and was a research biologist there in the fish lab in Norman 
the last three years of my career, um, I, <laughs> I, I took a position as the assistant chief of fisheries in Oklahoma City, uh, basically trying to, to, to do the, run the day-to-day the -day operations of the fisheries division for the state. And I did that for three years. And uh, that, that kind of pushed me over the edge. <laughs> at, at the end of 32 years of career with the state, I was ready to retire. And just timing-wise was perfect at that time. The, the lady that was the conservation director at BASS was herself ready to retire. And she recommended they hire me. And they did. And I have been the conservation director at Bass now for um, going on 10 years. Nice. That's awesome. Well, congrats. And that's, that's quite the career. And, and uh, you know, you know, I think I talked to a lot of kids and we work with a lot of youth down here that are interested in the outdoors fields and stuff. And it's very attractive to a lot of young people to want to work outside and that kind of thing. But there's not a lot of jobs, you know, available for that. True. And, Very and true. I know you can attest to that over your, your career at ODWC, you know, and that's one thing I, I always struggle with before I got hired on with, with the state down here in Texas was um, just the opportunities. And did you see, um, I'm always telling people the value in, in volunteering and things over your career. I mean, were, were those options available back, you know, 25, 30 years ago for people to come and, and do that? I know they yeah, are they, now to some extent, but. Yeah, there have always been opportunities to volunteer. In fact, when I was in high school, uh, I volunteered uh, to work with Texas Parks and Wildlife. I grew up in North Texas and, and uh, I volunteered with, Parks and Wildlife for a summer to go around to the lakes in in the district uh, that that encompassed the county that I lived in mm -hmm. and do fish sampling just strictly as a volunteer. We did a lot of lake rotenomes where you apply a rotenome to 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 sample a, a portion of the fish population. So we basically what I did all summer was count dead fish. Yeah, but uh, it it. It was that time in my life when I was kind of figuring out what I wanted to do, and I, I saw what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. uh, working with those other biologists from, from Parks and Wildlife, and so it kind of led from there. But there's there are internships that a lot of agencies provide. There are certainly volunteer opportunities that are out there that that uh, young people can get involved with. Uh, and like I did that summer, get a feel for what it's really like, you yeah. know, when you're, when you're 15 or 16 or 18 or whatever, a lot of times you really don't know what you want to do with the rest of your life. And some of those volunteer opportunities can really give you a taste of what the real world might be like to know whether that's something you want to try to pursue as a career. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, yeah. And that's one thing that really, I will, I will say got me, my job down here was, was volunteering and, you know, and I worked for the same co-op unit that you were talking about that you did your graduate work for there at OSU and um, mm -hmm. just trying to find something to do, trying to get my name out there and stuff. And, and it absolutely worked. And, and um, you know, 20 years later, I've had a, a great career down here in Texas all because of that, you know. And, and that volunteer 
uh, experience, that's what sets candidates apart. When, you know, when I, when I was hiring people mm-hmm. uh, as technicians or other biologists, whatever, uh, that was a big part of what we looked at because almost everybody would have the same schooling, the same classes, uh, the same basic knowledge. Yeah. But that experience that you got from volunteer or intern programs was what set candidates apart. Mm -hmm. And, and that can make a huge difference in getting a job or not. Yeah. Yeah. And we, I mean, it's hard to find people with that extra experience these days because there's a lot of people just don't take the initiative to, to do that anymore. It seems like, and I tell you, it's, it's getting harder and harder to find really qualified candidates for, for fisheries type positions Mm -hmm. anyway, uh, anywhere there, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's not a really big field. The, the, the number of state agencies or federal agencies that hire fisheries, technicians or biologists. It's not a lot of people. It's a very small mm-hmm. industry, if you want to call it that. Uh, so it, it's very competitive. Yeah. And so anything that, that candidates can do to, to be a little bit better than, than the next guy or gal, uh, that's, those are the ones that are going to get hired. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, um, you know, before we jump into the, to what you're doing with, with bass right now, um, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm from Oklahoma and it always, um, was cool to me to see kind of the evolution of bass fishing in Oklahoma over the years and how, and I always look back because my favorite lake to ever fish was at mountain Lake. And I know, you know, where that's at down there near mm-hmm. Ardmore and, and, uh, back in its heyday in the, in the nineties and stuff, just how such a small body of water could produce such large fish on a consistent basis for a number of years. And I mean, I held the state record for quite a while and, right. and, um, um, you know, just over your time working for the department there, I mean, how much did it change over the time for, for like trophy fishing? I mean, for the, producing these larger fish with the introduction of Florida strain and stuff like that. Right. Well, Florida bass were first brought into Oklahoma in 1972. And back then it was kind of a shotgun approach. The fish were stocked all over the state. And some places they did well, some places they didn't. Uh, typically, we found that um, once we got into a more formalized stocking program in the mid to late 80s, we had we kind of figured out the formula of, of where these fish would work and where they wouldn't so that we didn't waste time and energy and money stocking places where the fish were just not going to survive. And so we wind up trying to concentrate on, on those lakes that, that had the best potential of producing trophy fish because the only reason we stock Florida bass is to produce trophy fish. It's not to put more bass into the lakes. We're not increasing the overall numbers of fish in any of these bodies of water. We're stocking fish that we hope grow up to be 10 pounders. Mm-hmm or at least maybe their first generation offspring grow up to be 10 pounders. But we're not actually gonna increase the overall numbers. Nature sets that carrying capacity and says the fishbowl can only hold so many fish. We can't change that. So we're influencing the genetics. Mm -hmm. And it's a long-term gamble. Uh, 
most of the places we found that it, it took eight to 10 years to see results, to know if we'd really done some good in terms of producing trophy fish. So mm. uh, it, it's something that takes time uh, for those fish to grow up to a point where they, they become trophies. Yeah. But the, uh, o- over the course of my career, uh, a lot of what I did was work with Florida bass. I started the genetics program with ODWC back in the late 80s. And, and did a lot of experimental stockings, uh, worked with our hatchery program uh, to, to refine the, the, the culture processes and the stocking processes. And that most of that still carried on today. Uh, but rather than this shotgun approach of stocking fish all over the state, it's been narrowed down to just, I don't know, a handful, maybe 20 or 30 lakes across the state that, that receive these fish every year to because they've proven themselves to be good candidates for stocking. And that's the way most states do it. I think most states now that, that have gotten into Florida bass stockings have decided that they don't work everywhere. Right. And there are situations where they, uh, <clears throat> they don't want to waste the time and money. And, uh, and that's unfortunately with some of the success stories that people read about or hear about on social media, um, when I'm down there by you, OH Ivy is, you know, top of the list now for places where everybody wants to go to catch a big fish. Mm-hmm. Lake Fork in Texas. Uh, there have been places where the stockings have really done great things in terms of continually producing quality size or trophy size bass, but that can't happen everywhere. And uh, unfortunately, anglers tend to think, well, they do it in Texas. I want to do it in my state. And unfortunately, there's a lot of situations where it's just not going to work. It's a waste of time and money. And, uh, and that's one of the kind of the sad things is that there, there's a, a education gap, I guess you'd say, that anglers mm-hmm. don't really understand the whole the whole picture, the population issues, the ecology, the, the requirements that it takes to grow fish like that. Yeah. And um, in these days of social media, sometimes it's very difficult to overcome a lot of that misinformation that flies around out there and, and, and get good solid facts out so the fishermen understand why the state manages bass fisheries the way they do. Yeah, and I assume a lot of that's based on, on um, temperature and habitat and and all these different, you know, variables that can mm-hmm. be so different one lake to another, even though they might be right next to each other. You know, um, right. having open open water bodies and and stuff with a lot more structure and stuff like that, and, and food availability. I'm assuming being probably one of the biggest. Sure. Well, uh, you mentioned temperature. The climate has a huge huge, maybe, maybe the biggest influence on where Florida bass or F1s will, will work or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, you also have to have the habitat and you have to have the food and then you have to have time. Like I mentioned earlier, it, there've been studies all over the country that have done that say on average it takes 10 years to grow a 10 pound bass. So it doesn't happen overnight. You know, uh, stockings, uh, like I said, they're kind of a long-term gamble, and but you do have to have all of those components come together to really produce 
you know, quality fish like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been cool to see. And like you said, with social media now, you see a lot more of it than you probably would have before. You know, when everybody catches big fish, it's on social media somewhere. And, and you've got all these guys going around catching all these 10, 12, 13 pounders now. And, and um, with all the technology that's available in today's fishing mm-hmm. world and, and stuff. And I'm like, man, I mean, just the, you know, I, I run a charter fishing business down here on the side. And, 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 you know, when I first got a, a, uh, my Minn Kota, my spot lock on there, I was like, man, the crappie would have been in so much trouble if I had this when I was 15. <laughs> So, well, uh, you mentioned Mountain Lake in Oklahoma. Uh, you know, that's a perfect example of w- when that lake was cranking out trophy bass, eights, nines, tens, elevens, whatever. It was kind of a local secret mm. until the state record was caught. And then it couldn't be hidden anymore. Yeah. That's, that put it on the map. Now, had social media been around back then? You know, we're talking about... I don't know what mid nineties, maybe mm-hmm. um, would have been a whole different ball game. You know, that lake would have been ex- exposed almost instantly when those fish started showing up. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that's kind of what we see now across the country. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you know, that lake was just such a, um, and it's, um, I haven't fished it in probably 10 years, but I mean, I spent nearly every weekend I could down there after school. I mean, that was, that was it. Just get in the truck and go, go down there. And, and, and all the years I fished there, I never landed one over 10. I hooked one that with my grandmother one day that I, we both were like, this is probably a 13 plus pounder. I mean, it was just huge. It, it cleared the water right next to the boat. I couldn't believe it. And, uh, um, but we had several good fish on down there, but lots of just really nice trophy fish, eight, nine pounders, just, you know, I think my best day on that lake, we had seven fish over six pounds and five of those were over eight, um, just in one end of the lake, you know, it was just incredible and, uh, never forget days like that, you know? Right. So, and probably may not ever see another day like that, you know, um, well, that, in my that lifetime, likes- but that lake's a really good example of what I was talking about earlier about all the components coming together. That lake was drained almost dry because they had some problems with the dam. Mm-hmm. And and it was dry for quite a while. So a lot of brush and grass and stuff grew up in the basin. And when the lake refilled, they restocked with bluegill and shad and so on. And then they stocked Florida bass. And so you kind of had a a whole new lake kind of starting over and that those fish that were stocked then they didn't have any competition to speak of. They had unlimited forage. So they grew like crazy. And that, that turned in then six, eight, 10 years later, producing all of these trophy sized fish. And that's what we see routinely around the country. When there's a new lake situation, you can come in there. If you have the climate and the food and, you know, all those components, um, several years later, then it just booms. And, uh, and that's, unfortunately, that's, that's kind of hard to maintain sometimes is to, to keep that kind type of, uh, production, especially on the trophy end of things, uh, at that, that high level. Of course, now one thing that we've got going in our favor now that, that wasn't as prevalent, uh, 20, 30 years ago is that, Nobody keeps bass anymore. The, the catch and release ethic is so strong that 
people catch a six pounder, they'll turn it loose because they know that it has a chance to grow up potentially to be a eight or 10 pound fish. Mm -hmm. uh, 20, 30 years ago, uh, in fact, we did a study here in Oklahoma where we worked with taxidermists to determine the genetics of trophy bass that people were bringing into taxidermy shops. And it was a pretty common thing for people to bring in six or seven pound bass. They weren't always 10 pounders. Uh, and you don't see that anymore. Uh, so yeah. that, that's one of the things that's changed over the, you know, the last 20 or 30 years that's uh, probably enhancing the numbers of those trophy sized fish that are available for anglers. Out there. Yeah. Yeah. And this fish right here, uh, this one came from Mountain Lake and uh, Terry's did it up there in Oklahoma City. And uh, mm -hmm. it's probably the last skin mount I've ever done or ever will do. Um, but uh that yeah, was one that just wasn't doing well when we caught it, and we finally decided we were gonna we were gonna mount one from that lake, and uh, so that's you know pretty cool, a little good memory there. So, mm -hmm. but um, so you know, I know your work with the department and stuff, and then towards the end, you were you were doing um, kind of helping out with with what BASS was was doing with the tournament scene throughout that, and then um, you know, you come up with the I guess what, what the big issue with these tournaments was the the release of the fish and stuff. And I know you you were instrumental in in, in writing the the basically the the go to guide for for helping um, with this situation at these tournaments and stuff. But how did that kind of progress from from you know you retiring and you going into BASS and and what all you're doing now today? Well, back in the mid '90s, uh, there was a lot of concern about. Uh, the mortality of bass following bass tournaments. There have been studies done for years and years. And we decided to look at how to make that better, how to fix it. Because all these previous studies that have been done all the way back into the 70s made recommendations on what should be done, but nobody really tested them to see if they worked. So we set up several experiments over the course of two or three years to look at what could anglers do in the boats and what could tournament directors do at the weigh-ins to, to create a more what, what I call a fish-friendly weigh-in process mm -hmm. uh, to, to improve the survival of released fish. And over the course of, you know, these several, I don't know how many, I can't remember how many tournaments we we worked with, uh, we tested the process of running aerators or not, adding ice to your live well or not, using oxygen injection or not. We, we tested all this kind of stuff to see what really worked. And we came up with a suite of final recommendations that we felt very comfortable with that would help reduce that mortality. All along that process, I had been working with BASS, primarily at the Bassmaster Classic, helping with the fish care and handling of the, the fish that came in at the Classic. And, and I, at the time, I was uh, a member of a bass club in Oklahoma City. Uh, I was a member of the Bass Nation, or back then it was called the Federation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went to all of those meetings, so I got to talk to, to biologists and state conservation directors from all around the country. So we had a good communication network and, and I was connected with BASS. 
So all through my career, those those tournament related studies uh, were things that I I helped incorporate into some of the things that Bass did, Bass the company did, uh, in terms of their weigh-in processes. And I had certainly had other folks that were very instrumental in helping. Dr. Hal Schramm, mm-hmm. who uh, was a professor at Mississippi State University, recently retired, uh, was my co-author on the booklet called Keeping Bass Alive. Uh, and, and that little booklet kind of became the fish care Bible for tournaments all over the country. We printed up tens of thousands of them, or Bass did, printed up tens of thousands of them, gave them out to tournament organizations, to anglers, gave them to state agencies to distribute. Uh, they went all over the country. And a tremendous response from tournament organizations and anglers in, try, in, in adopting a lot of those practices. When I got ready to retire from the Oklahoma Wildlife Department and Bass hired me, I, con- I kind of continued doing a lot of the things I had been doing as a volunteer or uh, for Bass. I, I called myself an unpaid consultant back then in those days. Well, now I do the same thing. I just get paid for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so it's a pretty good deal. Yeah. But uh, still, a lot of what I do now is the best. One of my one of the components of my job now is Bass Conservation Director is to oversee our tournament operations, fish care processes, and make sure that our tournament staff, whether it's at a elite event or a high school event or anything in between, uh, that we follow our protocols to try to maximize the, the release of fish after our tournaments. And, I, and I'll say, I, I, I think we're, Bass is pretty proud of the, the fact that if you look at all of our tournaments, all of those different levels, going back for 10, 15 years or more, our release rates average over 90%. And I think that's a testimony to not just how good bass does in terms of the weigh-in process, but how the anglers have done, have learned and are doing a better and better job of taking care of the fish in their boats in the live wells. Yeah. Because they're they've got the fish in the live wells for five, six, eight hours. Mm-hmm. At the weigh-in, we only have them for a matter of minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes both components to reach those kind of success numbers. And, and we're pretty proud of that. Yeah. And I think that the conservation message behind that, and then the stakes at these tournaments that, that people are, are, are competing for and stuff now are so high and, you know, keeping, I mean, these are your prized possessions. You want them to survive and be able to go back and catch again. So, I mean, that just, it's, it, it all makes a huge impact on the fishery and, and stuff. And that's really cool that uh, that you were able to do that and still continuing to do that across the country right. so well we we do get a lot of criticism uh suggestions i guess about why we don't completely convert to a catch way and release format mm-hmm. and and you know we can point to the fact that we rely on the state agencies all around the country as our guidance on what we need to be doing in terms of tournament related uh, procedures. Mm -hmm. 
and all the studies that have been done, nobody has ever shown that bass tournaments are having a detrimental impact on bass populations. Yes, we know some of those fish are going to die as a result of the tournament. But when you compare that to other forms of mortality, whether it's people keeping fish to eat, which is a pretty small portion anymore. Yeah. People just don't keep bass like they used to. Or just natural mortality. <clears throat> the tournament-related mortality is not causing any problems at, on the bass population as a whole. Mm-hmm. And so our bass's business model relies on weigh-ins that have live fish on the scales, on the stage, where the fans can see those fish. And the state agencies are telling us it's it's not creating issues with the fish populations. So we think we've got a good balance. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you know, it's such a um, – with all the social media stuff around it and, and all the ways to follow the tournaments nowadays. I mean, people really do want to see, see that. And, and, uh, I, I think when the classic was here at Conroe in 2017, I believe, um, it was, it was cool seeing those fish, you know, brought in and, and anglers and stuff. And, and, um, um, it's just, you know, kind of part of tradition, but the way you're doing it now, I mean, it's, 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 much safer for the fish and just all the precautions that are being taken. So, and, and I, one of the things that, that I wish we could get a little more exposure of all of the things that we do, all the processes we go to, the care we take for these fish, because when somebody watches a bass tournament on a live streamed on the internet or on television, all they see are the, the guys on stage holding up fish. Hmm. They never see what goes on backstage. Yep. And, and the care, the, uh, the intensity of the, of the process that we go through at every single tournament to try to maximize the survival of those fish. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things I really would, uh, I really hope we can get more exposure to that. Yep. So people can just see the links that we go to, to make sure we're returning as many of those fish as we can back to their lakes so that those people can catch those fish again. Yeah. And I know people would want to see that. I mean, that would, I mean, that's all great content that people are looking for now. And, and um, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you'll be able to get that done here. So, um, so besides the, the fish care at the tournaments and stuff, what are some of the other components of your position with, with the, with BASS? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. My job really, I think, is broken down into three components. One of them is the the fish care aspects and and dealing with tournaments. For those folks that are are watching that don't know how the Bass Nation is set up, 
the Bass Nation is our state affiliate program. We have 47 states and nine foreign countries that have Bass Nation chapters. Uh, they're all their own separate little 501c somethings. Bass, mm -hmm. Bass doesn't own them, but they're affiliated with Bass. But every one of them has a state conservation director who is just a volunteer, just a bass angler who has a little more passion for protecting the resource and has volunteered to take that job. Yeah. Very few of those state conservation directors have uh, any training in biology or dealing with policy or legislation, any of that kind of stuff. That's what I try to do is help them okay. deal with those state level issues. When they're working with their state fish and game agency, or they're working with local uh, access issues or invasive species, uh, working on habitat projects, the things that they're getting their local bass clubs, their high school fishing teams to get involved with projects within their state. I help kind of as an advisor. Uh, I help try to help build relationships between the bass anglers and their state agencies, their biologists. Mm -hmm. And then I work to try to provide, uh, through bass, I try to work uh, on, on the funding side to secure grant programs that can help funnel money to the state chapters to do some of these projects. Uh, group uh, companies like AFCO. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a, a project, a grant program with AFCO that AFCO puts up $25,000 a year that we then spread around to projects across the country uh, that are sent in to us. Uh, it's a competitive process. Uh, the, the state chapters or the clubs make proposals we, we score them and, and award funds to help them do those projects. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's part of what I help kind of facilitate. Yeah. The third part of my job is more the national scope. I represent BASS on a number of different boards and councils, committees at, at the national level that deal with the fishing and boating industry, deals with federal fisheries and, and resource management agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service um, deals with uh, coordinating with other conservation groups that are like-minded groups that uh, they're maybe not bass-centric like we are, but working with other conservation organizations uh, in terms of policy and, and things at the federal level dealing with legislation. So those are kind of the three components of my job. Yeah, that's that's really good. And so, I mean, I imagine a lot of the projects that the states are um, like looking for grant funding and stuff for or like habitat improvement, stuff like that. Is there other things besides that that they're working on or? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the list of eligible projects, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> that uh, that they can you know, send in proposals on. We've had groups that were um, <clears throat> doing education programs on how to fight invasive species and prevent the spread of invasive species. We've had groups that have worked on access projects where they work with a state or maybe a, a local community 
on improving a boat ramp or parking lot to, yeah. to improve boating and fishing access. Uh, the habitat projects are probably the biggest one. Uh, the, the vast majority, I think, of the grants that we put out there mm-hmm. deal with habitat enhancement projects, whether it's uh, putting out brush piles. Uh, it might be putting out artificial structures, uh, plastic or, or PVC structures, or it might be uh, planting aquatic plants, native aquatic plants, to try to get mm-hmm. uh, grass growing in, back in some lakes. Uh, and then there's projects that are dealing with fish care. Uh, we funded projects where states have uh, refurbished or built uh, release boats or release trailers, where they have upgraded the equipment that they use at their weigh-ins, uh, trailers and tanks and tubs and aerators and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So there's a, a you know a pretty broad range yeah. of things that are that are considered eligible for these grant programs. Yeah, that's cool. Cool to know um, that there's a lot of different things on there. Um, you know, and, and, and let me let me throw in another plug right here. That's not it's not about bass, <laughs> but I'm also on the board of directors of the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame. And we just started last year. This will be our second year. Our own grant program through the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and we have $25,000 to give away this year to organizations that want to do very the same kind of projects. Now, the the ones that are that come through BASS are only for BASS-affiliated clubs. The Bass Fishing Hall of Fame grant program can be any bass fishing type organization, any club, high school team, uh, but it covers those same, those same kind of eligible projects. And so yeah. people can go to the Bass Fishing Hall of Fame website, and uh, there's a, a link on there to the grant program. And uh, that, that money's going to be, uh, I, I think we're going to probably have that grant program going for the next several years. I can see we, we're going to have funding available to do that sort of thing. And those can be, uh, thousand dollar project or they can be five thousand dollar project so there's there's potentially some pretty sizable amounts of money that are available there to do some really cool stuff yeah yeah one of the big things so you know we do a lot of work with the texas brigades program down here which is a big um, high school age um, youth conservation program and and uh, my wife and i run the coastal brigade camp down here in galveston and and one of the big things we're always hitting on is is monofilament recycling and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it's been really cool to see over the years, um, these kids go back and, and just come up with their own projects just from what little they learned one day for 30 minutes at our program, you know, back in their communities. And, and uh, it's really cool to spark that interest and just see something take off. And, and we've had some of those put up with our stickers all across the country, you know, as these kids move around and stuff. And uh, it's really cool to see that in the youth movement and stuff. And, and th- that's one thing that, you know, started after I was out of school and I talked with so many friends and stuff. It's like, man, there was no, there really wasn't very many, if any, that I know of like high school fishing clubs and that kind of thing. Like, you know, growing right. OSU, I mean, they got their own bass team now and, and uh, it's really cool to see that and the opportunities of, that are coming out of that. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how popular the, the high school fishing programs have gotten, uh, you know, there's 
there's, I think that's still a little bit young to, to see whether or not a lot of those kids stay engaged in fishing as they become, as they go into college or beyond, yeah. uh, because it, ha- it just hadn't been around that long to really know. I mean, we're, we're starting to see a few, you know, there's obviously some of our pro anglers that were high school or college anglers. Uh, and so it, from that standpoint, we know there's a few that are graduating up mm-hmm. uh, into the, to the professional ranks. Uh, I think the research that's been done so far has, has shown that the, the vast majority of those kids that get into high school fishing probably don't graduate and, and, and become bass club members or really, they may still fish, but they're not going to be really as engaged as maybe they were in high school. Of course, mm-hmm. you know, when you're in high school, it's, it's as much a social activity as it is a fishing activity. Yeah. You know, getting to do things with your friends and uh, classmates, that sort of thing. But it certainly has caught the uh, caught the eye of the industry. The boating and fishing industry is is really starting to pay attention because they obviously understand these are these are future customers. Yeah. That that can buy their products, and from a state agency standpoint, they're future license buyers. So it it's uh, it's an important uh, aspect of what the states and the industry are doing is trying to make sure they keep recruiting these kids and retain them, mm-hmm. uh, keep them involved, keep them engaged in the sport because that's, uh, those, those are the future, uh, you know, in terms of providing the funding for conservation and the, the funds that keep the industry going. Yeah. And there's, there's a bunch of them out there. Like you said, I know just going to ICAST the last five, six years, I mean, just seeing the number of these high school you know, fishing clubs that are coming to events like that and stuff. And, uh, it's cool to see, you know, something that you didn't have option doing, you know, when we were growing up, um, in an organized thing like that, but, um, it's fun. And, and so. I think the, the growth potential is still there. Uh, you know what? We've probably saturated the colleges, there's not a, there's only so many colleges out there and, and most of them probably have fishing teams if they're going to have one mm-hmm. But on the high school side, we haven't scratched the surface. Yeah. There are so many high schools around the country that don't have fishing teams that could, Yeah. that the, the growth potential is really there. Uh, if, if, it, if all of, all the things kind of lined up and, and you really started getting involved with a lot of those other programs. Yeah. Yeah. I recently just had Edwin Evers on the show and, uh, you know, he just started his own, um, high yep. school team up there yep. near Oolagoff. So Oolala. it was really yeah. cool hearing, hearing the excitement from him, you know, being involved with all these kids. And he's like, I didn't know how many would show up, but we've got like 50 something kids on the team. I'm like, man, that's a lot, <laughs> but, uh, it, it's a cool, cool opportunity for sure. So, um, yep. uh, you know, probably the biggest thing that's, that's, um, probably hit the industry just here in the last, you know, two to three years is, is all the talk about all the, the forward facing sonar and, and all that and how it should mm-hmm. be used. And, and, uh, I will say I've been able to go on some guided trips for crappie and things like that. And, 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 and see the, the value of using a tool like that. And it's, I mean, we know everything changes so fast and with technology and stuff, I mean, is, um, what's your take on, on that, you know, outside of BASS and stuff? I mean, do you, have you gotten to use that technology yet or? Not much. It's on, yeah. it's on the boat. Yeah. I, I really haven't played with it as much as I should have. 
I, I really need to, and I, I know a couple of guys here that live locally that I think would be very good tutors if I, if mm-hmm. I really wanted to get out there. <clears throat> um, and I, I've got to figure out how to use it better. So we, I make a trip to Lake St. Clair every year. And uh, so when we go north for our small annual smallmouth trip, I've, I've got to be tuned in a little better with it when I go up there. But um, it has been the topic of discussion among a lot of fisheries biologists. In fact, a couple of committees I've on, I'm on, it, it has come up uh, where <clears throat> there's there's a lot of concern among the anglers that it's 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 going to do harm somehow to fish populations. A couple of studies that have been done specifically with crappie anglers uh, have shown that they don't think that there's really going to be that big an impact mm-hmm. on the crappie population, that it's, it's going to be kind of self-regulating. And certainly with bass fishing, from a harvest standpoint, so few people keep bass anyway, yeah. that it's, it's not going to make a big difference there. Mm-hmm. The the thing that I, you know, obviously it's, it's exposing fish that we kind of knew were there, but we didn't know where they lived. Yeah. And, and now it's, it's, uh, people are able to find a lot of those fish that were, uh, elusive most of the year, maybe other than just spawning time, you know, those fish lived offshore somewhere. And, so, but from a biological standpoint, I really don't see uh, a great deal of negative impacts. Uh, certainly, the states are kind of watching that, and I think uh, there'll probably be more studies done, maybe a little bit more so on the crappie side than the bass side, mm. uh, in terms of the potential impacts on on the size structure of the fish population. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think to just to kind of explain that, it's the if you're cropping off the biggest fish, it may not change the total numbers of fish because if you take a few fish out of the population, nature replaces those with mm-hmm. smaller ones that grow up. And things like crappie that grow so fast and live fairly short period of time, uh, it, it may not be that big a deal. Uh, in terms of the total numbers, but it may impact the size structure and the numbers of trophy size crappie or big crappie, keeper size crappie. So there's some concern there. Uh, in yeah. fact, I'll be at a meeting about two weeks where I'm sure that will be one of the topics of discussion. Yeah. Um, it, it really it's, it's more of a social issue, I think. And, uh, you know, whether people decide they want to try it or not, you know, the whole issue of whether it's fair whether it's fair chase um you still gotta hook them <laughs> that's a that's a personal decision you know uh, yeah. i know a lot of the guys that i know that are really good with it say yeah you can find them but it doesn't make a meat yeah and exactly. uh, so um yeah. you know and and from the from the company standpoint um you know the electronics companies uh, the big three in particular are are some of our our being basses MLF, MPFL, some of our biggest sponsors. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I just, there's no way that Bass or any of these companies is going to restrict or, or ban any of that kind of technology. If you're an old fart like me, 
I, I can remember when the first paper graphs came out and, and we heard a lot of the same. Now, this is before liquid crystal, before LCDs or LEDs or any of that. It was a paper graph. Uh, it was right after the flashers. Okay, yeah. Everybody had a flasher, and then all of a sudden people had these paper graphs, and the resolution was incredible, maybe even better than what you got with the, today's stuff. Hmm. And we heard a lot of the same, oh, my God, we got to ban these things. It's just that fisheries are going to be destroyed. And you talk to the really old timers, and they say when the, when the first sonar equipment came out, there were places that wanted to ban it because it was too much of an advantage to the fishermen. Yeah. We still got fish. We still yep. got fishing. And yep. in fact, I think in a lot of ways, these are the good old days of fishing. And uh, I don't think the technology is going to change any of that. Yeah. Well, well, uh, you know, it, it, uh, the fishing industry is just going to keep expanding and growing and things are going to get better and better. And, and, you know, the, they'll come out with new lures with, with better colors than what they came out with the year before people are still going to buy it. And that's what keeps it going. And, um, you know, with all the conservation work through all the States, I mean, doing to produce, um, quality opportunities for people to go out and catch fish. I mean, there's, there's no end in sight. So it's, it's a good thing. So, well, what, what are, um, you know, doing all this work fisheries work and everything i mean what are do you get a chance to fish that much i mean i know if, if, you know we're friends oh, on yeah. facebook stuff and i see you post pictures but what's kind of some of your favorite things to go do these days as far as fishing well i i have become a smallmouth addict over the past 20 years i guess i make an annual trip to lake st Clair. Mm-hmm. Uh, i've got a friend my friend hal shram the pr- retired professor he has a cabin in minnesota Nice. And uh, I go up there and spend a, a couple of weeks, a couple of times in the summer with him. Uh, and we primarily are chasing smallmouth yeah. uh, in, in the lakes, Mille Lacs or the Mississippi River or some of the small lakes. There's so many lakes up there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, any time that I get an opportunity to fish when I'm on the road, if I'm traveling to some of our events, uh, if there's an opportunity, I'll, I'll jump on it. Uh, nice. My wife has, has, recently taken really taken to, to to fishing and she really enjoys getting out and going with me now uh, locally i don't fish uh, i haven't fished a local bass club tournament in a couple of years now primarily because my schedule just didn't mesh right with the club schedule uh, but uh, i do have some local opportunities i've got a, a some private lakes that i'm that i have access to that it's awful hard to turn down when, um, when, when you can be on a, a lake and catch, you know, five and six pound bass and not see another boat all day long on a holiday weekend. Yeah. And that's pretty nice. <laughs> uh, I can imagine, <laughs> you know, but it's, uh, yeah, I, I'm still at up with the bug and, uh, you know, my, it's my, my, profession in some respects and my passion so uh yeah it's it's still fun well that's awesome well we'll have to plan a a trip sometime to come up there and and go fish mountain lake together so i'd love to get back on that place and and try it out so um but um so we've got the the bassmaster classic coming up here pretty soon and uh, and stuff i know there's probably a lot of big plans going on for that this year 
And uh, where's that going to be held at this, this year? This year it's in Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, Fort Loudon and Teleco Reservoirs right there on the Tennessee River. Uh, we were in Knoxville just a few years ago, uh, set a record crowd uh, until, until last year's record. <laughs> it seems like they, they kind of battle back and forth to who's, who's uh, attracting the most fans. Uh, but it's uh, in March this year in Knoxville. Uh, nice. It's, uh, you know, the, the, the expo, the big trade show, tackle show uh, is already sold out wow. space-wise. They've, they've sold every square foot of space that they've got mm -hmm. and have a waiting list. So it, it stands to be one of the biggest and best uh, expos that we've ever had, showing, showcasing all the newest, latest, and greatest tackle yep. and boats. And uh, we're not having our uh, conservation meeting this year. We do it every other year. So we did okay. one last year in South Carolina. So this year uh, we are going to uh, work with TVA. The Tennessee Valley Authority is going to be hosting a, a luncheon to talk about a lot of the conservation work that TVA does on the Tennessee River in that area. Uh, fish sampling, aquatic vegetation management, uh, access improvements, that sort of thing. So kind of a, a show and tell thing for TVA to, to let people know what they do as yeah. the agency to help improve fishing and, and the resources on the Tennessee river. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I know one other thing before we get off, I'm, you know, that you're doing a really good job at is, is, um, y'all's Facebook group, the conservation page. Um, yeah. so kind of just share, um, how people can find that on there and how they can kind of follow um, BASS and, and keep up with all the great work that y'all are doing. Well, it's, uh, the two, two things they can look at. One of them is on bassmaster.com on our website. If you will scroll across the top, there's a tab that says nation. And when you open that one up, you'll see a, a sub heading that says conservation. Hmm. So if you go to the conservation page, we post videos and articles uh, about a lot of the topics of the day and uh, projects and things that are going on within, within BASS and within the Bass Nation and and from some of our conservation partners. So that's the first thing is Bassmaster.com. I think it's Bassmaster.com slash conservation news or okay. dash news is the way to find it. The other one is the Facebook group that you mentioned. Uh, I started that several years ago just to have a place to, to post cool stuff that's going on in the world of bass conservation. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I kind of scour the Facebook and the internet. I, I subscribe to all kinds of different uh, groups that, that do work that relates to freshwater fisheries in particular to bass fishing, if it somehow relates to bass fishing. And I will share those uh, articles or videos on this bass conservation Facebook group. And, and, uh, I post something there, maybe not every day, but yeah. pretty close to, yeah. to every day, try to get something, something new up there from all over the country, anywhere I can find things that are going on in the, uh, the bass conservation world. And 
So the Facebook group is just that. It's B-A-S-S with the dots between the letters, B-A-S-S Conservation. And if you would just do a, a quick search on Facebook, you can find that group. And, and you ask to join the group, and I get a, a little notification, and, and I'll look up and make sure that people are not axe murderers or something crazy <laughs> like that. <laughs> and then I approve you to be a part of the group, and then you can see all the, all the posts and stuff that come up every day or two. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure and put all that in the show notes so people can just click on it and go to it and check it out and stuff. Thank and, you. Uh, and, and Gene, I just want to thank you for all your work you've done over your career. It's been uh, really cool to watch and see what, what all you're still doing today. And um, really thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Well, you're, you're very welcome. It's been fun to do, and I appreciate the opportunity. So, all right, Gene, we'll, we'll y'all have a great year with the tournaments this year, and uh, look forward to seeing all the cool stuff coming out of BASS. So, thanks for yeah. being on. All right, well, I want to thank Gene Gillen for being on this week's show and, and really appreciate him taking the time to come on and uh, you know, kind of fill us in on what all he's doing as the conservation director for BASS and all the great stuff he's got going on and um, really enjoyed kind of reliving some of the stuff he worked on when he was in Oklahoma as uh, one of the fisheries biologists there in uh, for ODWC. So um, if you haven't yet, make sure you like and subscribe the the podcast on uh, Facebook and Instagram and we would love to have you leave a rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. That really helps people find the show. And uh, we really appreciate all the great feedback. Um, and we are still gearing up for the third annual Hunt Fish Podcast Summit, which will be coming up here in just over a month. So um, really looking forward to, to letting the cat out of the bag on who all is going to be there this year. It is going to be unreal than the people we've got coming in from all across the country. So until then, we'll see you on the water.